Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. is from Proverbs 20, verse 26. A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. This proverb is an exhortation to those with authority to practice discipline, justice, and punitive judgment. Wise leaders discern evil and deal with it. They find out evildoers and punish them. This proverb is very similar to the proverb that says, A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. The metaphor in this proverb proverb is grain. Evil is like the husks of the grain, the chaff, which must be separated out from the grain before it is suitable for use as food. The grain must be beaten so that the shaft is separated. And one of the methods used for that was to drive a cart with heavy wheels in circles on the threshing floor, breaking the chaff from the good grain. This reminds us of the other proverb. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Parenting and ruling a kingdom have many correlations. This is one of the reasons that one of the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church is that the children, their children and households are in good order. What we learn from this proverb is that wise parents and kings exercise discipline. The reason this is so important is that unless we make wickedness scarce, we are foolish rulers. Just as the grain in the husk is not suitable for food, The wicked, mixed in with those under our authority, makes the corporate body not suitable for the work that God has for it to do. Moreover, these things never happen in a vacuum. Wickedness has the characteristic of spreading. If you don't weed the garden regularly, weeds proliferate and grow. Paul says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, because leaven is yeast and it expands and a little now can become a big problem later and finally the popular proverb remains true one bad apple spoils the whole bunch so be wise sift out the wicked and establish justice in your realm this reminds us of our need to confess our sins so if you're willing and able please kneel as we confess our sins Reformation Sunday. On the last Sunday in October, every year we celebrate Reformation in the church. And this is because nearly 500 years ago, on October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This iconic moment in Protestant history was was one of the beginnings of the Reformation. 
our heritage is Reformed. Our denomination is the communion of Reformed evangelical churches. And we are Reformed because the Reformation was necessary. The earthly institution of God's church had become corrupted. Like the Judaism we've been studying in Acts, the Roman Catholic Church denied the gospel. Instead of seeking God's glory, they built gilded buildings. Instead of offering the free gift of salvation by grace through faith, they sold forgiveness in the form of indulgences. Instead of feeding God's sheep by giving the word of God to the people, they starved the people by speaking in a dead language that they couldn't understand. Martin Luther was on the forefront of a great movement that called the Western Church back to truth. He was a priest and a scholar. And like Paul, when he saw Christ for who he was, Luther couldn't keep quiet about it. And the result was one of the greatest sea changes in church history. And this is the stuff that great stories and thus Reformation Sundays are made of. Which brings us to our text. Luke is telling us stories about the acts of the apostles, or even better, the continuing work of Jesus Christ in our world. And one of the great things Christ does is he tells stories and he makes friends out of enemies. He turns bad men good. He makes the wrongs into rights. He brings fallen men and he makes them like himself. And the result is a great story. Last week we saw the revelation of the gospel to Saul in his conversion. In the midst of his breathing threats and murder against God's people, Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks on the Damascus road and converted him, baptized him, and gave him a commission to the mission field, a message for the Gentiles, for the nation of Israel, and for kings. Today's story is about the early ministry of Saul, who was later called the Apostle Paul. And what we see is the immediacy and the totality of Saul's conversion. Acts 9, verse 20. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Saul has done a complete about-face. A 180-degree turn. Immediately he preached Christ. Before he persecuted Christ, now he proclaims Christ. It's important that as Christians, we must know deep down that Christ is the message of the gospel. What did he preach? He preached the Christ. Jesus, the God-man, the promised Messiah of the scriptures, the one who takes away our sins. He is the answer. There is no other answer. And he answers all the questions. In him, all our problems are solved. All our sicknesses are healed, and all our wounds are bound. In Jesus, the infinity of God, and his majesty, and his grace, and ultimately his love, are communicated to men. 
And when God gives us revelation of himself, we overflow. And thus we preach, we proclaim, and we become salt and light, springs of living water. We can't contain the gospel because we can't contain God. It doesn't work that way. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. Immediately he preached the Christ. Next notice where he went to preach. He went to the place where he was intending to go to persecute the church. He went to the synagogues. And this, as we shall see, is Saul's method of ministry. Wherever he goes out, whenever he goes out, he first goes to the Jews. They are God's chosen people. They have the Gospels. And so he goes to the Jews and the synagogues and he preaches Christ. And the result, understandably, was amazement. Because his reputation had preceded him to Damascus. Acts 9 verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? This amazement makes sense. This is a 180-degree turn from where he was going. He was attacking Christ, and now he's proclaiming him. But this amazement doesn't faze Saul. Saul isn't worried about what other men think of him. He wasn't worried about what the Christians thought of him, and now he's not worried about what the non-Christians think about him. He was concerned about what God thought of him. And God continued to reveal the truth of Christ to Saul so that he got better at his job as an apologist for the gospel. Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So Saul was immediately and totally converted to Christ. He was sold out for Jesus. And he was given power to fulfill his commissioning. Back in, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 9, where God revealed to Ananias Saul's mission, Jesus said this, back in 15 to 16, But the Lord said to him, this is when Ananias complained to God, he said, but, but God, this guy's coming to, to destroy the church, to destroy the Christians. And, and this is what Jesus said, But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here we see Paul converted. Ananias is justified in baptizing him and in healing his sight. Immediately Paul goes out and preaches the Christ. And here we see Saul starting to be that chosen vessel. Because we see that he comes to the first of the many things that he must suffer for Christ's sake. Verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Saul gets in trouble in a hurry. Here Saul's message meets opposition. He preaches Christ. And he's getting the exact same treatment that he had been trying to give to the Christians. They want to kill him. 
But the Lord had bigger plans for Saul and delivered him from the Jews. Verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Saul's talking about this episode. He gives us even a little bit more information about what's going on here. So we have further data about this story. 2 Corinthians 11. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the, of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Isn't this a great story? This is, this is great stuff. There's intrigue, and there's, there's nighttime escapades, and daring escapes, and soldiers, and danger. Saul is living a story. It's a dangerous story. It's not safe. He's suffering. But it's a glorious story. Paul, Paul is living a glorious story. And, and, and we have lots of revelation about this, these episodes that we're, that we're studying today, because Paul talks about it here in Acts chapter 9, he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about it in Galatians chapter 1, he's, he's talking about it all over because he wrote a third of the Bible. He, Luke gives us this story from Paul's mouth when he's, when he's proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, when there was a mob there. But in Paul's testimony in Galatians, we see that these many days which passed, remember the text goes, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And in Galatians, we see that those many days which passed were more like three years. So in, Luke, in, Luke's, in Luke's story of the gospel here, and in Luke's story of the spread of the gospel, he, it's not, he doesn't speak about time the way that Western Americans think of it. In his mind, oh, in, after many days were passed. But, but Paul says in Galatians 1, starting at verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through, through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus, and after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So there's three years that have passed since his conversion, and, and this three years is, is the time that we read about in, uh, in, uh, in, in verse 20, where he said, Immediately he preached the gospel of Christ in the synagogues, and he's the son, son of God. And Saul increased, this verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, Proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Well, that increasing in strength was a, was a, a longer, drawn-out process than just a few days. It was many days. It was three years of Saul's faithful witness of the gospel that stirred up the Jews, enough for them to get a political intrigue against him so that Aretas, the king, would assign the governor to set a garrison of soldiers out to capture him. They're guarding the gate. Presumably... Well, he, he, he was ministering in Damascus and in Arabia. 
which is Arabia is, is a desert kingdom um, uh, just to the east of Damascus and south. And uh, King Aretas, his his capital was in uh, was in Petra, which is in Jordan today. And presumably Saul went to the deserts of Arabia for either solitude uh, to study the word. Uh, an opportunity to study his newfound faith and, and apply it, or he went there to minister to the Gentiles. D- Damascus was uh, was it connected to Arabia, and, and so he he might have gone there to minister to the Gentiles there, as he's been as he's been commissioned to by Jesus, or perhaps he went there for both reasons to both go to the desert for peace and quiet and also to to minister. Regardless, his ministry was effective enough that he incited the Jews to plot to kill him. However, by God's grace, Saul escaped to Jerusalem, where he met a new problem. Verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Despite his three years in the church, despite his growing in the gospel, his ability to confound the Jews, despite the Jews desiring to kill him, Saul still had quite a reputation in Jerusalem, and not a good one with the Christians. In all of this, Saul is learning to see and trust the Lord in his daily life, in his daily ministry. God's calling him to faithfulness. In Saul's, from, from Saul's perspective, what does he see? He sees a blinding light, and he sees Jesus, and Jesus gives him a command, and he knows nothing but to do what Jesus tells him to do. And it gets him in some tight spots, but every time God delivers him. And now the Lord provides a comfort to Saul in the person of Barnabas, verses 27 and 28. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. If you remember, Barnabas was, uh, we we read about him back in chapter 4. He was a wealthy Jew from the island of Cyprus. He was a Levite. He was also an early convert, and he sold his property and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas had capital with the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas knew the saints. He knew the apostles. They trusted him. They loved him. And he loved them. The apostles called Barnabas the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4. And he certainly lives up to his name here when he unites the apostle Paul with the church in Jerusalem. And we don't know the backstory. But it's certainly possible that Saul and Barnabas were acquainted with each other prior to Saul's conversion. Their hometown towns were not far apart from each other. They were only a few hours a sail apart from each other. Barnabas was on an island. Saul was in Tarsus. But they weren't far apart. And they were both prominent Hellenist Jews And uh, prior to their conversion. And speaking of Hellenists, that's where our text goes, takes us next. Verse 29. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. (laughs) Here he goes again. (laughs) Every time Saul opens his mouth, he's got somebody trying to kill him. But 
it's interesting. We, were, we talked about the Hellenists a while back. When, remember when, when the, the, the complaint arose within the church? There were Hellenist Christians and there were Jewish Christians. There, there arose a complaint of the widows of the Hellenists that they were being uh, neglected in the daily distribution. And so the church wisely appointed seven men to, to, to be deacons, to be ministers to, to the Hellenists. Um, and the, the, the men they chose, were, were their, all their names were Greek, so they were, they were likely all Hellenists. Saul himself, though, was a Hellenist before his conversion. So the, 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 the division between Hellenists and Jews was different from the division between converts and, and Christians and non-Christians. And, and the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, people that, that lived in the Greek world, that, that their life was more... Uh, Structured by the the Greek world, where the Jewish the Jews, in, in contrast to the Hellenists, were the, the the national nation of Jews, people who lived like Hebrews, who spoke uh, Aramaic, and uh, so there was a divide there. But some of the Hellenists were very vehemently opposed to the church. They were very militantly in favor of Judaism because they were invested in it. They had to travel to, Ju- to, to Jerusalem for the, for the feasts. And, 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 and so Saul, there were, a lot of the Hellenists were Pharisees. They were people that were very militantly involved with the establishment of Judaism, and they were looking for an earthly kingdom. And, and uh, Saul is the perfect man to dispute against the Hellenists. He, he was... He was their man. Remember, the, the high priest and his family were, were Sadducees, and the Sadducees were Hellenists also. And, and so he was well connected to the higher ups within Jer- in Jerusalem, the, the aristocracy. And he knew the way they thought, and he knew they were thinking about the scriptures. And he could convict them of the truth. And so he so he, he came to Jerusalem and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists and they were going to have none of it. They're, they're, they they decided to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they saw they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So Saul continues to proclaim the gospel and he continues to suffer for Christ's namesake. Um, and and he, he had a heart to save them. I mean, he he identified with them. He was he was one of them. In Acts 22, where Saul was telling this story about telling this story about his conversion to the mob at Jerusalem, we see that it wasn't simply the brethren who sent him out to Tarsus, but Jesus himself commanded Paul to go, to leave Jerusalem. Acts 22, verses 17 to 21. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So Jesus, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And in Galatians 1 we see that this trip didn't last very long. He was only there for 15 days. 
Galatians 1, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So, so, so Saul is up in, up in Damascus. The Jews try to kill him. He escapes, runs to Jerusalem, shows up in Jerusalem. First thing he does, speak boldly and disputes with the hell. Well, he first he finds the, the, the church, makes peace with the church. But then he goes and he speaks boldly and disputes with the Hellenists. They try to kill him. Then he goes in the temple. In a trance, he sees the Lord. And the Lord says, they're not going to hear you. You need to go to the Gentiles. Even though Saul complained, he said, they should hear me. I, they know that I beat the Christians. They sent me to go, to go attack the church. Saul thought that that was his job, go to, to, go to his countrymen and, and convert them. Uh, but Jesus is telling him, no, no, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Leave, leave Israel. Leave for now. And now the story of Saul goes silent in the book of Acts. That we, don't, we don't read about Saul for two, two whole chapters. After that, he becomes like the main player. We'll be talking about him the rest of the book. But, but here, he, uh, he disappears. The story of Saul goes silent in the book of Acts. It's a couple of chapters. And actually, if you look at the timeline, it's like 12 or 13 years that we don't hear anything about Saul. He's safely tucked away in his own country, in Tarsus, in his own region, and in his hometown of Tarsus, where Barnabas will find him later on in chapter 11. In the meantime, the story will go back to Peter. And some very important developments in the small and young church. But more on that in the next, in the next couple weeks. For now, we see peace and increase. Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. We see peace and increase. It's kind of funny, but it seems like Saul was an instigator. He was full of spit and vinegar. Before his conversion, he made havoc of the church. After it, he became a target and inspired great hatred in the enemies of the church. In Jerusalem, Paul was like adding baking soda to vinegar. The brethren sent him off to Tarsus, and then the church in the whole region has peace and it is edified. He's, he's, he's a spitfire. But this is part of God's story. God writes the story with, with, with hills and valleys, with high places and low places. There's both peace and there's tension. There's grace and there's suffering. God gives both blessing and sorrow. All things come by his hand. And the trajectory is always the same. Increase of his glory, establishment of his kingdom, and blessing for his people. All things come by his hand, and the trajectory of the story is always the same. Whether you're on a hill or in a valley, God is writing the story. And in his story... It's always further up and further in. Increase of his glory, establishment of his kingdom, and blessing for his people. And frequently it's in the times of the greatest unrest, when things seem the darkest, 
when we are the most miserable, that the greatest miracles happen. The greatest growth comes about. So what can we learn from the stories we've read and enjoyed today? Saul's story is a template for Christian experience. And this is because Jesus' story is a template for human experience. Saul's becoming like Jesus. And that's what we are all called to do. And the template is something like this. Grace. Suffering. More grace. More suffering. More grace. In all of it, increase of his glory, establishment of his kingdom, and blessing for his people. For Saul, that looks like this. We have the grace of his birth. In Galatians 1, he starts out, God, who separated me from my mother's womb. That's grace. Okay? Out of nothing, we have Saul. Then comes suffering. From birth till Saul's on that Damascus road, and Jesus says to Saul in the light, the blinding light, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Self-inflicted suffering. His love of God, and his love of death, was killing himself. He was hurting himself, suffering. So then we got a better grace than the grace of his birth. We got his rebirth. Christ reveals himself to Saul. There's restoration of his sight. There's fellowship with the brethren in Damascus. There's preaching of the message. There's the confounding of the Jews. This is better grace than his birth. But it's followed by more suffering. Opposition. The Jews sought to kill him. Arita stations a garrison outside the gates. What comes next? More grace. God blesses his flight. He escapes to Jerusalem. More suffering. The brethren there are afraid of him. More grace. Barnabas brings him into the fellowship of the saints, preaching his message to the Hellenists. More suffering. The Hellenists try to kill him. More grace. Saul makes it home. And the church lives in peace and multiplies. This is the Christian story. Life and suffering. Grace and more life. All the while we're learning how to serve and how to trust our God. But He is with us here in the darkness. All the while we can rest in His sovereign hands knowing that He is good and He has good for us. And he's drawing us to himself. And he's making us more like him. The difficulty is to see the good in the pain. But the key to this is to read the story. To get the big picture. And the story is the gospel. Jesus lives. He is God. He is king. And he loves us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The message this morning is about story. Our God loves stories. He is writing His story on each of us every day of our lives. 
we get further revelation from him and about him. All nature sings his praises, and time proclaims his majesty. The question for you is, is where do you fit in his story? Are you on his side or on the other one? The end of the story is clear, but the middle is kind of fuzzy. We can be grateful that we don't and can't know the in-between yet, because that is what makes the story adventurous for us. But knowing the end takes away all fear and trepidation. And getting to be on the right side is easy. We simply need to believe the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, that he rose from the dead, and he washes away our sin. There are two signs and symbols of this grace. This morning, joyfully, we saw the waters of baptism admitting Amalia into the church and the body of Christ, placing the name of our God on her and granting her all the promises of the gospel. And now we come to God's table, where we, as the body of Christ, are nourished by him, united into one body as the, one, as the loaf is one, and all participating in the same blood which cleanses us of sin and prepares us for fellowship with our God. This table is for all baptized believers under the authority of Christ and his church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.